The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, thanks for joining me today on Psych Up Live. Today we're speaking about telling your children about the dangers of today's marijuana. The focus of this show is not the legalization of marijuana. It seems likely that marijuana will be legalized in more and more states. At the very least, we hope it's decriminalized. This show is about information. It's about informing parents and children about the difference between medical marijuana and recreational marijuana, and about the difference between marijuana used in the 70s and today's marijuana. We are fortunate to have as our guest Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter and the author of a much-discussed and at times contested new book, Tell Your Children, The Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. Alex is an award-winning novelist as well as a former New York Times reporter. Born in New York, he attended Yale University and went on to join the Times in 1999. There he covered everything from the drug industry to Hurricane Katrina and served two stints as a correspondent in Iraq. His time in Iraq led him to write the first award-winning novel, The Faithful Spy. He received the award from the Mystery Writers of America. Alex Berenson, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Uh, Dr. Phillips, thanks so much for having me on. So let's start, Alex, by clarifying for our listeners the difference between medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. Well, uh, to be honest, uh, there's not really much difference between medical and recreational marijuana. There is a big difference between THC and CBD. And, you know, many of your listeners may uh, be aware of CBD, which has become very popular in the last, uh, really, just 12 months or so. So CBD is a chemical in marijuana that is non-intoxicating, not psychoactive, and uh, and doesn't seem to have many of the psychiatric risks of the psychoactive drug, the drug that gets people high in marijuana, which is THC. And so CBD, you can find it uh, practically everywhere now. It's in it's in oils, it's in creams. People use it for arthritis or pain or insomnia. Um, and there's not actually all that much evidence that it works that well for a lot of those things, but people do like it. And, uh, and so I think there's a lot of confusion out there between what CBD is, what THC is, and what uh, cannabis is. Um, and so, uh, again, CBD doesn't get you high. THC is the chemical uh, in marijuana that gets you high, and many people who use marijuana recreationally want marijuana that's very high in THC, very low in CBD, or in some cases, they just use THC extracts, which are, um, you can actually extract this chemical from the plant and then smoke that or, or eat it in an edible. Um, so that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a really crucial distinction. Now, one of the things I think someone on Mother Jones uh, read uh, said was, the marijuana smoked in the 70s was like smoking oregano. The marijuana today has so much more THC in it. Now, what could you say about that? I mean, that's that's absolutely correct. So, um, you know, marijuana, uh, you know, until the 70s, most marijuana in the U.S. was, uh, well, it was all, it was either, it either came from Mexico um, and was quite weak, or in some cases it actually grew naturally. You know, it's it's called weed for a reason. Marijuana actually grows, uh, you know, it grows pretty easily. But, um, but the marijuana that grows naturally uh, doesn't have a lot of THC in it. It might have 1% to 2% THC by weight. And people, uh, you know, people who want to get high, they don't want to have to smoke you know, 10, 10 marijuana cigarettes, 10 joints to get high. So the people who farm marijuana have spent a long time crossbreeding plants to get more and more THC. And actually, those plants tend to have less CBD in them. So in the, in the old days, you know, in the 60s and 70s, uh, people might have smoked 
uh, joints that were, you know, 1% or 2% THC and maybe half to 1% CBD. These days, that wouldn't even qualify as marijuana, believe it or not, in most, mm-hmm. you know, most dispensaries. Um, these days, if you go into a, you know, a dispensary, which is, which is really, uh, you know, a marijuana store in, in a place like California or Nevada where marijuana is legal, um, you're going to be sold a product that's 20 or 25% THC and basically no CBD. And on top of that, it's going to have, uh, it's, it, 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 you may you may be offered these products that are pure THC or near pure THC extracts. So so Mother Jones is right. What people were smoking back in the seventies, yes, you could get high. You could certainly ingest enough marijuana to get high. You could you could uh, you know and there and there were some. You could use hashish, which was which was relatively high potency. There were some strains. You know, people could talk about Thai gold or uh, Thai, I'm sorry, Thai stick or Columbia gold, but. It, all that marijuana was much, much less potent than it is today. So we have a much potent strain. And would you say, one that we don't have, because we don't have regulation, a youngster might not know that an edible has 25% more THC in it. And, and I even read on the National Institute of Drug Abuse site, it could have as much as 50 to 80% THC, that, just as you're saying. That, that's correct. And so, and you know, it's funny, it's not really funny, but since the book came out, um, you know, I've heard many stories from people, especially with edibles, but because if you're smoking, um, you know, the term that psychiatrists or doctors use is you can titrate your dose. So in other words, you know, you smoke a little bit, you get a little bit high, you smoke some more, you get very high and you decide, you know what, I, I, I'm starting to, you know, have feel negative about this. I'm not going to smoke anymore. I'm just going to, I'm just going to try to stay where I am right now. But if mm-hmm. you take an edible, you basically have no control. Once you right. eat that, once it's in your stomach, you're along for the ride. And the other thing that mm-hmm. people don't understand about edibles is that edibles are processed through the liver. And that means that they're actually, the THC is changed by the body into a form of THC that's even more psychoactive. So mm. oftentimes, it's amazing to me when I talk to people who've had bad experiences uh, with marijuana, even if they're regular users, oftentimes they say, well, I took this edible and I just, you know, I had the worst hallucinations for the next mm. 12 hours and, and there was nothing I could really do about it. You know, I just had to wait for it to pass. And, and I think for people who are experienced marijuana users, that's uncomfortable. But for people who are inexperienced marijuana users, it can be worse than uncomfortable. It can be really very upsetting. It sets off a tremendous amount of panic that that it's never going to end. Yeah, uh, you know that that situation. Now, one of the I'm flash. We're going to flash forward to to some of the suggestions at the end of your book. And one thing you say is you actually don't believe anyone under 25 should even use marijuana of the kind of um, strength we're talking about it or marijuana in general. Maybe you could explain to our listeners why you would say that. Sure. And, and by the way, that's a little bit unrealistic, right? I mean, you know, alcohol yes. is legal for people who are 21. <laughs> right. um, it's probably not realistic to say that we're going to have the substance if we legalize it, we're going to make the age 25. But ideally, that's where it would be. You know, my, okay. my joke about this is the only thing that you can do at 25 that you can't do when you're 21 in the United States is rent, uh, rent a rental car, <laughs> right? Everything else, everything that's else you great. get once you're 21. Um, but, but so just to, just to go back to this, um, you know, the brain is still developing for people into their late teens, into their early 20s. And so marijuana use uh, is definitely dangerous to the brain. Uh, you know, it, it, we know it affects memory. We know it hits, you know, the nerve centers in the brain that govern fear and panic. We know it can cause paranoia. We know it can cause long-term harm to the brain. It's better, you know, and look, if people want to use it knowing those risks, so be it. But it's better to use after 25 when your brain is effectively fully formed. And so ideally, what we would say to people is don't use this, you know, if you're depressed or anxious, certainly don't use this to make yourself feel better uh, psychiatrically, because in the long run, that's not a good idea. It may work in the short run, but in the long run, you're likely to have rebound where you have more depression or more anxiety after you're using. And mm. don't use it. Use it, to, use it for, you know, occasionally to have a good time. And that, I mean, and in the United States, you know, it's a free country. People uh, who, you know, who are aware of risks and decide to make decisions, we let them do that. Uh, you know, people are allowed to drink. They're allowed to smoke. They're allowed to gamble. 
um, you know, we don't, we, we, we generally are relatively permissive. And so I don't have a problem with adults using marijuana. I just want them to know the risks. Yes. Now, one of the things that I immediately thought of with teens is we definitely have less teens smoking cigarettes, but between 2017 and 2018, we have a 78% increase in vaping. Now, yeah. they're, va- they're vaping nicotine now, but there's a good chance they will definitely vape marijuana. And that's where the whole question comes in, not only the reactions we're going to be talking about, but... Um, Some people say the earlier people start with a consistent use of marijuana, the more likely cannabis use disorder. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the addictive quality. Sure, sure. So, and by the way, you're absolutely right about vaping. And a lot of you say, you say it will happen. It actually already is happening. Many teens um, who, you know, they they start with nicotine and they realize, hey, I like this. You know, I feel good. (laughs) It's a, you know, I, I feel I'm getting high a little bit. And here, nobody knows it. It's, uh, you know, I I don't smell like smoke. It's very discreet. Now, here's a way I can get some THC oil and put it in a pod and smoke that too. And wow, now I'm really high and I'm totally getting away with it. You know, it's like, I don't have to, I don't smell like alcohol. I can do this even at school and no one's going to know. And and that is a really bad, dangerous pattern of use, by the way. But it's, you know, it's hard to convince a teenager that uh, getting high is a bad idea. Um, uh, so, 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 so let's talk about cannabis use disorder. So, so there's this perception out there that cannabis is not addictive. Um, and, and that's not true. Um, even with what we, you know, what people would call old cannabis, the stuff that was not super strong the stuff that was not pure THC oil, about 10% of people who use get addicted. Um, and, and that, you know, that's, that's a little bit less than alcohol. It's certainly less than something like heroin or cocaine, but it's not nothing. And it looks like the new stuff, the stronger stuff, more people get addicted. So let's define uh, addiction, right? Addiction, you can say, I'm not addicted to this because if I quit, I don't have terrible physical withdrawal, right? So if an alcoholic tries to quit drinking, you know, he or she can actually die, right? You can die from alcohol withdrawal if you're, if you're, right. if you're an alcoholic. If you're a heroin user and you try to quit cold turkey, you're going to have terrible withdrawal symptoms. You're going to, you know, you're going to shiver and you're going to, you know, you're just going to feel awful. Your, your body is going to physically crave the drug. With marijuana, that's less true. People who, people who decide to stop smoking generally don't have bad physical withdrawal. But what they have is very oftentimes bad psychiatric withdrawal. They get anxious. They get irritable, they get depressed, they get insomnia. Their bodies, their brains are saying, I want this drug. And so, so that's one way we know that cannabis can be addictive. Here's the other way, and I think this is actually the best definition of whether a drug is addictive. Many people who use cannabis, just like many you know, people who use alcohol or use other drugs, find it causes problems for them in their life. It causes problems in their relationships. It causes problems at work or school. They, 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 are, they are having, uh, you know, issues as a result of the drug. They, they have problems with law enforcement sometimes, yet they cannot stop using, even though they want to, even though they know that this, that this drug is causing problems in their lives, they have a very difficult time cutting back. And to me, that's the most important definition of addiction, not whether or not you go into physical withdrawal, but whether or not you continue to use the drug, even if it's causing problems in your life. And that is clearly true for many people who use marijuana heavily. And I think particularly, let's just talk about college kids for a moment. Often they don't reflect enough to see that the marijuana is what's causing the problem. So in the case of one young man who is very socially shy, he began to use marijuana on a regular basis. Of course, this did not help in terms of performance at, at college, much less social connection. But a crazy thing happened because as he would try to stop the irritability, just that you're talking about, the family didn't understand why he was so irritable, um, annoyed with everyone, annoyed with himself for not doing the superior academic work he was used to. But, you know, that didn't make him stop. It made him just keep right. using. So it got right. worse and worse. Yes. So, um, and that's, that's a real pattern. And, you know, and I think because, because you know, you, you can smoke all day, you wake up the next morning, you don't have a bad hangover. You say to yourself, oh, you know, it was fine. Yeah, I didn't do anything yesterday. I, I really barely left my room. 
But, uh, you know, I'm fine today. And guess what? Maybe I'll start smoking again this morning. I think, I think that's a real pattern for people because if you drink all day, you're going to wake up the next morning with a hangover. Right. And, you're, and, 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 you know, that hangover is a sign that maybe you drank too much the day before. Maybe you shouldn't drink today. You know, you, you really have to have a compulsion with alcohol to push through that hangover, right? I mean, and start drinking again the next morning. But, but with cannabis, because it isn't so physically toxic, people will use it all day, every day. I mean, there's a whole subculture around that. I, you know, everyone has heard the term wake and bake. And, you know, we call somebody who wakes up and, and, and drinks alcohol an alcoholic. And that person probably is not bragging about his use of alcohol. But we right. call a person who wakes up and hits his bong the first thing in the morning, oh, I just, I'm, I'm a wake and baker. It's a very strange drug. And, it, and people have a very, people who use it heavily have a really strange attitude towards it. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole idea that you keep reinforcing that it, because it's not physically causing impairment, that does not mean it's not causing psychological, um, neurological, or, or and social impairment. That's, right. that's, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. So now, I've, I've heard people on shows and in writing say to you, okay, you're making a big deal over the risks of marijuana, Really, unlike opioids, unlike other types of drugs, that nobody dies from an overdose of marijuana. Um, so, so that is that is correct. Technically correct. No one, you cannot smoke so much marijuana that your, you know, that your heart stops working or that you stop breathing. Right? You can you or that your liver shuts down. Um, it is actually true, which people don't realize, that marijuana increases the risk of heart attacks. Um, so that if you smoke a lot of marijuana, um, you actually can die from a heart attack that the, that the cannabis caused. But I'm, I'm not going to say that's common. It's not common. It's quite rare. But so technically, that's, a, that's actually a direct physical result of, of marijuana use. And so, so marijuana can actually kill that way. But the primary way that people die after marijuana use is not, is not again, from physical overdose. It's from, uh, it's from suicide, homicide. And, and vehicle accidents, which so, mm-hmm. so, so people say, it's interesting, people say alcohol kills almost 90,000 Americans a year. Um, and, and that number comes from some people who are dying directly. Uh, there's, a few, there's a couple thousand people a year who die directly from alcohol overdose. And then there's 20 or 30,000 people a year who die from chronic alcoholism. Most of those people have uh, liver disease. The mm-hmm. rest of the alcohol deaths that we say are attributable to alcohol are things like falls or, or car accidents or suicides. And what we basically are saying is if your blood alcohol is above a certain level and you get in a car accident, we're going to say alcohol caused that. If, you know, if your blood alcohol is above a certain level and you kill yourself um, and there's a toxicology screen, we're going to say alcohol causes that. And that, I, that's, a, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Okay, but no one has ever done the same thing for marijuana. In other words, no one has ever looked at 10,000 suicides and said, here's exactly how many of these people are using marijuana when they kill themselves or, you know, 10,000 fatal accidents. And here's how many people are using marijuana. If you if you calculate those numbers, you find and this is this is again, we don't have exact numbers. You will find a significant amount of marijuana related mortality. So, so the, the, reason I, the reason I think this is important is the cannabis lobby says marijuana has never killed anyone. That is not true. It, it doesn't cause overdose deaths, but that doesn't mean it doesn't kill people. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stop you right there, Alice, because we're going to have to take a break, but we're going to come back and really expand on this. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we're speaking with Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter and the author of the much-discussed book, Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. There are many people who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. 
This is where the BS stops. Listen for Taming the Wild in Your Dog with expert, author, and nationally recognized dog trainer Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. Hi, folks. Welcome back. We're speaking with Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, and we're discussing many aspects from his new book, Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. Alex, one of the questions people ask you is, based on what you're writing in the book, are marijuana users really more likely to, to develop schizophrenia? Um, I would say the answer to that question is almost certainly yes. Uh, uh, so we need to we need to talk about a little bit about what schizophrenia is and what psychosis is. Um, right. So psychosis is what is the term that psychiatrists use for people who are having a break from reality. So that could be you know you're having hallucinations. You know you're literally seeing things that aren't there. You could be having auditory hallucinations. You're hearing things. You're hearing voices telling you to do stuff. You could, but it, but it could also be you're having delusions. You know I, I'm the most powerful person in the world. I'm Jesus. Uh, you know, uh, or, or the delusions could be very negative. You know, the, my, my family is poisoning me. Um, the police are out to get me. There could be any of those things. Or, or you could have paranoia. Um, and in fact, you know, schizophrenia used to often be called paranoid schizophrenia because paranoia was such an important, uh, you know, part of the delusions. So, so those delusions can be, you know, they, they can, they can be temporary or they can be permanent. And it, it's clear that marijuana can cause uh, can cause temporary psychosis. I don't think okay. anyone would dispute that. Um, okay, and so, so you correct me on this, but just for for our, for our listeners, so we're we're clearly not saying that if you smoke a joint, there's a very very good chance you're going to become schizophrenic. That's no, that's a no, big absolutely leap. not that. Right. That, so that's but, absolutely not that. He, here's here's what here's what I'm saying, both in the book and to you. If you, if you smoke, and certainly if you smoke a lot, there are people out there, and, and, and it's not rare, who become temporarily psychotic after using cannabis. In other words, we, we've all heard these stories. Maureen Dowd actually, you know, famously in the New York Times wrote a story mm-hmm. about how she went to Colorado and ate an edible and had a lot more of it than she expected and spent the next 12 hours, uh, you know, on, basically on the floor of her hotel room terrified. That is cannabis psychosis. Now, she didn't get diagnosed. She didn't wind up in the ER. And oftentimes, people who go through these nasty experiences just manage them themselves or manage them with the help of friends. 
But sometimes the you know the, the the hallucinations or the delusions get so severe that people wind up in the hospital. They wind up in the ER. Sometimes they're sedated. Sometimes they're just you know put in seclusion for a little while. Sometimes they're just watched until it passes. Those are episodes of cannabis-induced psychosis. Mm. And, and I don't think there's any psychiatrist in the world who would disagree that that happens. Okay, so then I want to add this piece that worried me. We have, we have people like Maureen Dowd, and I'm going to also give you a story, that even on their first round of smoking, they have an episode. Now, when we put that together with the fact that if there's a prevalence for schizophrenia in a family, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come out usually off in the first year of college for boys, a little bit later for females. When we put together that smoking, drugs, concerts, etc., all happen around that same time, you can see where the danger starts to increase. So I sure. mentioned to, to Alex at the break that... I worked with a family a long time ago, and there are a number of brothers, but only one brother seemingly may have had the, has a predisposition. So his first time using it, he's arrested at a fish concert uh, for, for starting an, an uproar and, and hitting someone, etc. Happens again, he's with friends in Washington, D.C., arrested again, and ends up in a psych unit each time where the parents yep. have to have to get him out and get some treatment for him. But So when you see, if you're a child or if you, even as a young adult, see you have the kind of episode you just described for Maureen Dowd, you want to think long and hard about, do I have a family predisposition that could possibly make me prematurely end up with a psychiatric disorder that may not have showed had I not started smoking. Is that right? That, that's, that's right. And so, so that's, that's a really, you know, that's a really nice, concise way to put it. And one reason the book is called Tell Your Children is that I want parents to be able to, you know, if they notice, uh, you know, changes in their kids' personalities that seem more than you know, normal teenage moodiness, or even if their if their children worse have one of these outright episodes, that they'll know that you know what, this may have been cannabis. Cannabis might have caused this, and this is a really, you know, this is a really big red flag. This is a really big warning sign, and I need to talk to my kids about it. And you know, if you're using, it's the same thing. If you're using and you have one of these episodes, you really should be aware that maybe this is not the drug for you. So. So, so, okay, there's, so there are these temporary episodes that are, that are warning signs. And then there's this other issue, and this is where the book is more controversial. And the issue is, does heavy use of cannabis, especially by teenagers, especially with more potent, the more potent strains that are available today, does that increase your overall risk of developing schizophrenia? And the best evidence on that is yes, it does. And the reason that we know this is that People who've been doing this research for many years can tell you it's very clear that a lot of people who, who became schizophrenic were using cannabis heavily at and before they became schizophrenic, at and before their first real break, their first diagnosis. So what the cannabis lobby will say is, sure, that's true, but maybe these people were just self-medicating. Maybe they just, you know, they, they knew they were sick, they were having these weird thoughts, and they used cannabis to make themselves feel better. The problem is that even when you adjust for people who are having what are called prodromal thoughts, prodromal psychosis before, these, you know, these odd thoughts that didn't rise to the level of full psychosis, you still see an association between cannabis use and later schizophrenia. Even when you okay. adjust for people with a family history, you see that. So, so no matter what you do, it appears that cannabis use increases the risk of schizophrenia. Okay, now built into that and, and the pushback comes with whether or not, Alex, we're talking about um, scientifically proved causation or correlation. Now, let's look at your new, are you, are you, for instance, referring to your NYU study where the, um, so, you say, go ahead. So the, the, there, there have been a number of really good studies. The first study actually came out in 1987, believe it or not. It's that old, and it covered... 50,000 Swedish army recruits in, uh, in Sweden, by, and this is by a Swedish psychiatrist, and it, it showed the cannabis use of more than 10 times, just more than 10 times uh, uh, in teenage years 
was associated with a more than doubling of the increase in the risk of schizophrenia. And there have been many studies since then. And here, here's, here's what I would say about correlation and causation. To truly prove causation, you have to do something called a randomized controlled trial. So if you right. go to the doctor and your cholesterol is high, he or she is going to say to you, you know what, I think you should take a statin. It's going to lower your cholesterol. It's going to reduce your risk of heart attack. It's, it's a good idea. The reason the doctor can say that with so much confidence is there have been a number of studies done where people, five or 10,000 people were split into two groups and half were given a statin and half were not. And the people who were given the statin not only had lower cholesterol, they had fewer heart attacks, they had fewer strokes, they did better. And so the doctor can be very confident that it was the statin that caused that. The problem is you can't test a drug to see if it causes harm. So you can't tell 10,000 people, hey, we want you to smoke marijuana every day for five years, and we're going to let 10,000 other people not smoke, and we're going to see how many of you develop psychosis. That would be unethical. It'd be illegal. And by the way, it would be impractical, because how are you going to you know, make sure that 10,000 people are getting high every day for 10 years or five years? Okay. So, so what we have to do instead is look at these what are called epidemiologic studies and see if there's correlation. Okay, so I would, I, I'd, I'd come back and say, so we don't have the gold standard of, of scientific inquiry that gives us a perfect cause and effect. But, and, and to those who are your detractors, we might say, that's true. We don't have that in front of us yet. But to throw away all the correlations, um, like your NYU study, is that from 2016 to 2014, the number of ER visitors who were diagnosed with psychosis and secondarily with cannabis tripled from 30,000 to 90,000. Correct. Now, people could say, how do we know there wasn't something else going on with these people? Well, that's, a, you know, again, this is, so this is based on ER admission data, it's hospital billing data. Have I looked at every one of those? 90,000 cases? I have not. But that is only one piece of evidence. There, right. there is a ton of evidence. And, and it's, not just, it's not just this epidemiologic evidence. There's biological evidence, right? So, so if you look at what are called synthetic cannabinoids, and these are drugs that are uh, illegal, um, but, you know, were widely used, especially, uh, you know, in, in like 2000 through 2015 or so, um, called K2 and Spice, those drugs hit the same receptors in the brain as, as marijuana, as THC. They just hit, it, hit those receptors more strongly. And we know those drugs can cause really severe, terrible psychosis, even in people after a single use. So, so that's good biological evidence. So there, it's, and by the way, there's also what's called a, there's a dose response uh, curve. In other words, people who use cannabis more frequently tend to be at higher risk for psychosis. Um, right. And uh, one, one other bit of evidence, which is people who, people who have psychosis, in other words, let's say you're diagnosed with schizophrenia and you're going to your psychiatrist or your doctor and you're taking your antipsychotic medicine and you're, and, you're, and you're doing well, you're pretty healthy. If you start smoking cannabis, you are extremely likely to have a psychotic episode very quickly. So those people who are most at risk even when they're doing well, if you give them cannabis or if they give themselves cannabis, bad things happen. So there's, there's just all kinds of evidence. Well, um, one of the things that I immediately thought about <clears throat> when we were thinking about those with an existing diagnosis is um, bipo- bipolar folks. And I had someone yes. who she knew alcohol was not good for her, but she... All right, she had her problem smoking alcohol, but when she smoked, we were gone. And uh-huh. I, one vivid memory is she walked into a group that she was in, <clears throat> and it was so clear that she was out of touch with reality that, <clears throat> you know, one of the things we talked about was, you know, the glass of wine isn't going to be great, but if you have that at home, it's a safer bet than ever smoking or using yeah, marijuana. Yeah. It, it, it seems that for people with bipolar disorder, cannabis can produce mania. Um, I mean, yeah, uh, the evidence isn't quite as strong as uh, with cannabis and full-on psychosis and schizophrenia, but, it does, but there is evidence that cannabis can worsen mania. Now, the one thing that if folks read your book, they'll see is correlation study after correlation study 
of people going into an emergency room with a psychotic disorder, and there is a secondary diagnosis of marijuana misuse. Um, We also have data on the amount of, of course, accidents where there's nothing else in the blood but THC. Yes. In emergency Um, rooms. uh, Yes. So, and in fact, by the way, there was just a study uh, that came out of Colorado. It's not in the book because it's more recent. Um, that's, that showed that the number of people uh, who were coming to ERs in a big ER in, uh, in Colorado, um, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the bigger hospitals in the, in the whole state, um, I believe tripled between 2012 and 2016, um, you know, who, who were coming in at, with a cannabis presentation. Um, so it's clear on a population-wide basis when you expose more people the high uh, concentrations of THC, um, bad things happen. And look, here's 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 what I'll say. This this does not necessarily mean. And you said this is you know our conversation is not going to be about legalization. That's true. It doesn't mean that cannabis should necessarily be illegal. We tolerate lots of harm from alcohol use. Alcohol is part of our society, and we know that it can hurt people. But we want it to be legal. And you know when we tried to make it illegal, that didn't work at all. So you can know all this and say, okay, I still think cannabis should be legal. Right. But my, my objection is that the cannabis lobby doesn't want an honest discussion of these real risks. So what we're saying to parents is it's likely to become legal. That being so, let's talk about the much more increased THC in marijuana. Let's talk about what vaping would do. And let's talk about the correlation studies where we see psychotic episodes. We see predispositions being very dangerous. And we have no idea how much we're going to see from teens vaping on a regular basis, THC at this level. I mean, that's a very dangerous thing. So to be aware of it, is to at least have one step forward in terms of care and concern. Yes, absolutely. You, you said it. You said it, Dr. Phelps. Okay. So now the next question that comes up that you get a lot of pushback on, and I guess I kind of understand it, it's kind of scary, is the question of marijuana use and violence. We're going to come right back and speak about cannabis and violence. You're listening to Psych Up Live. Our, our guest today is Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, the author of the much-discussed book, Your Children, The Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. 
It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with Alex Berenson. Um, and we're asking the question at this point is, what about this possible association between marijuana and violence? Sure. Um, so as we, as we were saying, that's a very, it's a very controversial issue in the book. Uh, the cannabis lobby certainly does not like it. Um, so here's the thing. In, in laboratory studies, cannabis does not seem to increase aggression. And, you know, I, you know, a lot of people have said to me, you say cannabis causes, you know, violence. The only thing I want to be violent towards when I get high is my bag of Doritos. And, <laughs> and, and so, so, so there is truth in that. In a lot of people, cannabis just, you know, makes them hungry or sleepy, uh, you know, and they, they don't do much. The problem is that's not everybody. And one way to think about this is to think about alcohol. We all know that alcohol can increase aggression, and anybody who's been in a bar at 9 p.m. and then come back at you know, 2 o'clock in the morning can see the difference. But we all, I'm sure everybody who, who, you know, who's listening to your program knows also that you know, he or she can have a drink at dinner and not you know, get into a bar fight. Or people may even know people who drink too much, but they drink at home, they sit in front of the TV, and they, you know, they drink beer or wine until they pass out. So we know that alcohol can cause violence, but we also know that it doesn't cause violence in everybody. This is, this is true with cannabis, too. Cannabis can cause violence, but it doesn't cause violence in a lot of people. What it does is it makes some people paranoid. And for people who have pre-existing psychosis, or even people who don't, but who, for whatever reason, are vulnerable in the moment to some kind of psychotic episode, paranoia is really dangerous. Well, paranoia can lead you to believe that you're under threat, you're under attack, and so the only thing for you to do is lash out and possibly lash out at whoever is close to you. And that's what cannabis violence looks like. It doesn't look like a bar fight. It looks like, it looks like somebody stabbing a stranger or somebody you know, uh, attacking a vulnerable relative, a person who poses no threat to them at all, except that the person who's under the influence and paranoid believes that that person, uh, you know, that that victim is actually a threat. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things that you're saying um, is that don't think it's benign in certain people, particularly if there's a pre- pre-diagnosis and or somehow you already see you're susceptible to psychotic episodes. One thing you wrote that, because I've worked with domestic violence, was of concern to me that I wanted to share. You wrote that in 11 studies um, on domestic violence in 2017, yes, alcohol increased the violence 70%, but marijuana increased the violence 45%. So to me, yes, we know this about alcohol, but... I'm not thrilled to see that the marijuana also increased violence, Alex. And maybe that's what I want our listeners to know. That's right. That's right. They do not think this is benign. And so psychosis, unfortunately, is a, is a very serious risk for violence. And so people who have schizophrenia, are, and this number is hard for me to believe, but it is the best number available, they are 20 times as likely to commit homicides as healthy people. And unfortunately, a lot of that risk is mediated by cannabis. So in other words, if, you're, if, you're, if you have schizophrenia, but you're taking your antipsychotics and you're you know, taking care of yourself, you're not necessarily particularly violent. But unfortunately, if you stop taking your antipsychotics and you start using recreational drugs, and that's the drug you're going to use most likely is cannabis, your risk for violence goes way, way up. So that's mm-hmm. a lot of the risk. But then beyond that, there does seem to be 
you know, in any population, there are going to be people who have bad reactions when they use, even if they don't have pre-existing psychosis. And some of those people are going to get violent. They're going to commit domestic violence. They, they, you know, they're going to get into fights. All the stuff that we know happens with alcohol also happens with cannabis. And when we spoke before about the idea that edibles, because that we don't have regulation at the moment, we don't know even what's in it, the chances as this young one young man at a concert, he didn't use an edible, but he was smoking, begins pushing other people and shoving other people. Pretty soon we have consequences that are not intended or someone becomes much more verbally aggressive with someone else and gets in a car. And they really yeah. just have, and that's not a safe situation either. So we can go from, you know, the most violent anecdote to really bring it down to typical reactions, particularly with young adults um, yeah. who, who are eating this or vaping this or whatever and worry about the violent outcome, even though it was certainly never intended. Yes. And, and th- look, again, this is rare. We should be, we should be, yeah. uh, you know, we shouldn't overstate this. This is, you know, this is a commonly used drug and these uh, reactions are relatively rare, but, but, but they're not, you know, they're not vanishingly rare. I, you know, I, I don't want to underestimate it either. It, this does happen there. You know, there are cannabis, uh, cause car accidents every day. I'm talking about fatal accidents in this country where people are driving under the influence of cannabis and get into car accidents. And, and, you know, there's a perception, I think, uh, that cannabis, that people don't speed when they're high. They only speed when they're drunk. Actually, it looks like they're just as likely to be speeding when they're high as when they're drunk. Uh, cannabis, in terms of its propensity to cause, uh, you know, fatalities, um, again, not through overdose, but through homicide and suicide and car accidents, it appears to be, you know, at least as bad as alcohol if you look at the population statistics. Mm. Now, one of the things I think that it's worth un- us underscoring, there was just a show on public radio today about um, banning the screening um, for THC in the blood for people who you would who you would yes. I, I and I, I don't think, think that's that crazy. Ed, well, just, just well that. I think I think that, yeah. Go on. Well, I was going to say. It doesn't necessarily mean that if you smoked in your own home the night before that you will be unfit for work the next day. I mean, we, we don't really know that that's true. No, um, I, I, I agree with that. But, but we're talking about you should... Uh, so unfortunately, again, alcohol comparison is an interesting one. With alcohol, alcohol is processed pretty quickly by the body, and, and you, can, you, know, you can pretty easily do a breathalyzer and, and sort of determine somebody's blood alcohol content uh, quite quickly. Cannabis, unfortunately, is much more complicated. There's an active metabolite. There's an inactive metabolite to test for either one. You have to do a blood test. It's much more expensive. And then the cannabis lobby will fight and say some people develop a very strong tolerance to this stuff. And so at levels that appear to be intoxicated for an average person that they're actually not intoxicated. And so it is much harder Mm -hmm. to just than with alcohol to say, hey, this person is intoxicated and can't work today. Um, and so, so I don't know what we do about that, but I don't think the answer is to prevent employers from screening. Mm. Well, the problem is people get pick up, picked up in the net who really don't have a problem and are regulating their use. And because, as you say, yeah. it has a sustaining, you know, lasting uh, kind of show in the uh, blood work, it becomes a problem. It's, I think one of the things we're saying is this is complicated, um, but because it's complicated doesn't mean we should throw everything, the correlational findings, even I, I was teasing Alex before and saying every, every professor tells you, you know, one anecdote doesn't equal data. That being said, having done case studies in my field, it, it makes no sense to ignore anything we see and try to make sense out of it for the people that we help. So let me ask yeah. you this. I'm just going to read your statement and then ask you if you would list or just speak about some of the things you want parents to pass on to their kids. One thing you do say at the end of your book is most people who smoke marijuana will not develop psychosis or commit violence, but we need to make sure that everyone who smokes or uses knows the reality of that connection. Yes. Um, okay. So I, I think I think that uh, we should, you know, take some of that money we've spent on tobacco uh, and very effectively 
you know, I'm sure every everybody out there can, you know, think of the ad of the woman smoking through her esophagus or the ad of the, you know, of the guy with a big uh, a heart attack scar down his chest. We've, we've really demonized tobacco use in this country, and, and that's a good thing because tobacco, you know, kills a lot of people. And we really should be doing the same thing with cannabis, uh, especially if we're going to legalize it. Now, it's, it's sort of strange to say, okay, we're going to legalize this. And at the same time, spend a lot of money telling people that it's not a good idea to use, especially young people. But uh, but that apparently works. So so I think people do need to know the risks. And it really frustrates me when the cannabis lobby won't have honest discussions about this. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you, I think part of the reason for your book and certainly the reason for this show is people may have all kinds of opinions about um, legalization, but what we want you to know in the event it happens and it's likely to happen, be aware that this is not the, these, the stuff you smoke at concerts in the 70s. Be aware this is very different. And so That's that right. you can have some really honest discussions with your children. And if, you're, if your kid says, I, I was on the floor, as Maureen Dowd said to you, and I was so frightened because I thought I'd never be sane again, then that may be a child who has a predisposition. That is, we're hoping that you learned from what Alex shared today and what we were able to put out on this show to be wary enough to protect yourself and your children. Yes. That's, um, and that's you know, tell your children. That's, yes. that's why the book is named what it is. Yes, if, if you do not, as you say, if you do nothing else, tell your children. Um, I yeah. want to thank you, Alex, for coming on, for writing the book. I know you've gotten all kinds of um, reactions from it, but that's a good thing. I've seen how you've handled all those reactions. Mostly, I think anything we can do to inform our children is a good thing. So thank you yeah. again for the book and, your, um, and all the discussions you've had, including the discussion today on this show. Well, Dr. Phillips, thanks so much for having me on. And I would just say one, one last thought about with your kids. Um, it, to the extent kids can delay use. So, you know, 12 is a terrible time to start using. 14 is a terrible time to start using. 16 is a bad time. 18 is not great, but it's better. If you can get into your 20s, that's better still. So, you know, you can say to your kids, hey, this is maybe something you're interested in. And I don't think it's a great idea, but please don't use it while you're a teenager. Wait until you're in your 20s before you try it because at least by then your brain is more developed and the psychiatric risks are somewhat less. So, so, so I, you know, that's, a, that's hopefully a practical thought that you know, I can leave people with. At least try to get your kids to delay their use. Okay, sounds good. Um, I want to thank my listeners and remind you that you can hear this show and any prior show as a podcast. This will be a podcast by 6 p.m. Eastern tonight. Um, You can hear these podcasts on the podcast app of your iPhone, on iTunes, on the Voice America site, on Sketcher. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, mostly take care, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.